So, if you were to take out your phone or your, de- your smart device, your tablet, whatever, and you were to Google the phrase, do you trust me? I guess depending on Google's algorithms and following your life, one of the top hits that you would get would be the movie Aladdin. I mean, would you have ever guessed that? Do you trust me? And Aladdin goes to the top. At least that's where it is on, on my devices. When I Google, do you trust me, the first thing I get is some cartoon character going like this. And it's Aladdin. Now, <clears throat> I did that just for fun while I was thinking about this sermon, and it led me straight to this picture. So I love the movie Aladdin. I grew up watching it. Uh, my family likes the, the live-action movie Aladdin that just was released a couple of years ago. And if you're not familiar with this story of Do You Trust Me in Aladdin, basically, uh, Aladdin is trying to swoop this young lady off of her feet. And they run into some difficult situations here and there. And he oftentimes will look at her in those moments and he will put his little gorgeous smile on and go, Do you trust me? Right? And every you know girl in that moment just oh, fawns over that moment and and in this part of this movie, it's usually in a place where it takes a pretty big level of commitment on Jasmine's part, which is the lady's name, to agree to trust him. Like one of the times she's supposed to step out onto this like flying carpet. And I mean, I know it's a cartoon, but even still, there's a moment that you kind of go, don't ever trust a boy, right? Like you're looking at your daughters in the room and you go, women. Girls, don't trust the boys. Like, you just don't do it. No. But we, we look at Jasmine and Aladdin, and she trusts him, and it usually works out well in the cartoon. And it goes forward, but what's interesting about this idea of trust is it takes a level of commitment. But then, how does commitment work? Well, commitment takes action. It takes some sort of step moving forward. And that's what we're going to be talking about today as we're in the book of Haggai. So about five years ago, I heard a famous pastor, a guy named Craig Rochelle, preach a sermon series off of this book, and it was called The Time Is Now. And I actually preached much of that same type of thing with our students about five or six years ago. And I came looking at this series that we're going to do right now called Renew the Vision, and it's all kind of focused around hope. I wanted to just say that there's some truths in there that uh, you know, Craig spoke, and I'm going to bring him back up, so I want to make sure, you know, I'm not plagiarizing his words this morning. But if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Haggai chapter 1, and if, if your Bible's anything like mine, which hopefully it is, Haggai for you should be about two pages. It's a very short book, but it's a very important book, and it's in the Old Testament. It's a very important book for a couple of reasons. For us, I'm going to say it's important because it's going to show us a good picture of what to do and how to be committed. How do we renew the vision of worship and God in our heart? So to kind of set up this book and, and where we are, you got to go back in history. So in about 950 BCE, King Solomon builds a majestic temple. I mean, he builds a, a mighty temple to the Lord. If you know anything about the Old Testament and the temple, this is the place where God would come and dwell among the people. Inside of this specific room, the Holy of Holies, a priest would go through all sorts of purification and cleansing rituals to be able to enter into this room, and that is where God came and dwelt among the people. This is important because 
this temple, and specifically this room, is how people worshipped God. They didn't have the Holy Spirit filling them like you and I do today, thankfully to the New Covenant. They had to go to a temple, and they went through you know, purification processes and rituals. And so this temple meant a lot, not only to them spiritually, but it meant a lot to their culture. About 400 years after Solomon builds this temple, King Nebuchadnezzar comes in and destroys the temple. And he takes all of Israel into captivity. And this is an important concept for us to know because captivity would have changed their culture completely. If you've ever seen the, the show or read the book, The Man in High Castle, uh, it's basically a picture of where it, what would have happened if in World War II w- w- the good guys wouldn't have won. Like, what would have happened if the Nazis and Japan and all of that would have won the war instead of us? Well, this book kind of portrays this, and there's still people living inside of the Americas, although half of it's owned by Nazi Germany, the other half is owned by Japan, and this is what captivity would have looked like. Everything that was once American would have been stripped from them, their, their, their language to a certain degree, their culture, their religion. And this is very similar to what the Jews would have been experiencing under King Nebuchadnezzar. Their personhood, their, their life would have been stripped from them in captivity. Now after about 50 to, to 70 years, historians debate on this, Nebuchadnezzar uh, really allows the Jews, and he says, to go back to where King Solomon was and to go back to this land of Jerusalem and, and rebuild the temple. They had, they had done their their due diligence, and they were good servants under him, and so they, he lets them go back, and they get back, and because of the book of Ezra, we kind of see this picture. And so they begin to build this temple, but as soon as they, they get about 14 years into this process, and they stop, because war comes. And so they, they got the foundation of the temples built, and they, they kind of got an, a, an altar built, and they stopped building. Because of war. They stopped building for a, a certain amount of time. They have no progress. Which, which would mean in their culture and in their religion, they have no place of worship. They, they have a disconnection between God and themselves. And that's where we're going to pick up in this book of Haggai. Because Haggai comes in as a man after God's own heart. And God gives him a message to the people to say, Renew the vision. Get back to worship. So that's where we're going to be. Chapter 1, verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say, The time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you, yourselves, to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways, you have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. So God, through Haggai, calls the people to come back, to get back onto task, and to 
worship him. Right there in verse 2, it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Notice the language there. These people. If you are familiar with God and how He spoke about the Israelites in the Old Testament, that is not a phrase that He would have used often. No, no, no. They wouldn't have been these people. They were more so called my people. Second Chronicles 7.14 If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. So even in the midst of a, a time of turmoil, God refers to these people as my people. But in this moment, God does not call the chosen people, the Jews, the, the Israelites, His people. He says, these people. I can remember about five years ago, coming home from a student Christmas party. My wife was out of town, and we have a little dog. He's a Yorkie, and he's, what, 13 pounds or so, something like that. And we had just been given, we got new hardwood, we, we, we bought a house, we renovated the house, we got these hardwood floors, and my, my parents, as kind of a housewarming gift, gave us a Roomba. Raise your hand if you have a Roomba. Anybody? Okay, so you may or may not know the suffering that's about to come. So we have this Yorkie dog. He's trained, he's good, he's ignorant, but he's for the most part a good dog. And sometimes he likes to do things just because he's angry at me. Me, specifically. So my wife's out of town, so I'm the one taking care of this small, cute dog. And I may or may not have you know, let him out that day. I can't remember. I was busy. It was a Sunday. I get home after this Christmas party, and, and I think we were still a portable church at this point, so my Sunday mornings were like five o'clock in the morning, and then I went all day, and so I finally get home at nine o'clock at night, and this is my fault, but I'm blaming the dog. So I get home, and he, surprisingly enough, had to go to the bathroom. He poops, on my brand new hardwood floors. A couple of times. Now because of Roomba, that little small 13 pound dog pile of poop then got ran over by Roomba, but didn't get sucked up and cleaned up like Roomba is supposed to do. No. She took poop all throughout my house. Everywhere. I cleaned our floors for two hours after my long Sunday because I had poop everywhere. So I pick up the phone and I call Amy. And I notice, I don't, this is, this, I say, Amy, your dog has pooped in our floor and Roomba has taken it everywhere. Now I could have said our dog my dog, Moose. No, it's your daggum dog. It's my fault, but it's your dog. And in some way, I think this is how God is kind of looking at the Jews in this moment. It's like, you have messed up. So you're no longer my people in this sentence. You are these people. I'm kind of disowning you to a certain degree. But he says, these people... 
say that the time has not yet come. The time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Why did they say that? Because they ran into war. They, they had a justifiable excuse to stop building because war happens. But God says, no, no, no. You have been out of war now for some time and yet the house is still not finished. It's not even in process. And this is a point for us to remember because what the Jews did is they saw opposition, they saw difficulty, and they saw that as a sign from God to not finish the work. They saw that they thought they were doing the right thing and building this temple, and then war comes and they go, ooh, this is hard so we can't continue to build, so this must be from God that we shouldn't continue because it is hard. And that couldn't be further from the truth than what God is telling them right now. Like, the closer you get to God, and the closer you are to doing the Lord's will, I'm here to tell you, the harder at times it will be. Satan is looking to pounce on you. He is prowling around like a lion. And the closer that you walk with Jesus, the more you are aligned with God's will in your life, the harder he is going to work to reveal the brokenness in your foundation. Do not be like these Israelites in the moment. Don't just think because it's hard, wow, this is God's way of telling me that it's not the right way. I had a football coach as a freshman in high school. I'll never forget him. His name was Coach Pruitt. I'll never forget him because he was one of those coaches that kind of lived vicariously through the players. So one practice he comes out there. Jody, you can probably appreciate this. He's a coach. He's, you know, he's got his little frat tat on his ankle. He played football, and you know, he was a big man, right? I'm going to go play quarterback. Doesn't put pads on. He plays quarterback. He doesn't tell us to, like, slow down, anything like that. So he takes a snap, goes back, and our defensive end just wallops him. I mean, I'm just like, didn't even, I mean, he just takes him out. Dude cut his ear off with his helmet somehow. Like, his ear was flapping, looking like, uh, was that, Evander Holyfield and Mike Tyson kind of deal? Like, I mean, it was nasty. That's not the story you need to remember. That's why I'll never forget Coach Pruitt. But Coach Pruitt had a saying with us. He told us the first day. He said, now look, I'm not going to always talk to all of you. I'm not going to remember all your names. We had a big team. I think on our freshman team, there was probably 75 players on our freshman team. And he looked at us and he said, here's one thing you need to remember. If I'm getting in you, if I'm wearing you out, if I'm constantly on you about doing something, that means I care. If I don't talk to you, that's when you have a problem. Like if I don't ever correct you, if I don't ever tell you what you're doing wrong, I probably don't care about you. Great coaching method. That's fantastic. But I think there's, there's some application there. If life is just going smooth, maybe we're not leaning into God's will enough. Like, I think there's, there's a, an aspect of church teaching out there that says, man, God just wants to bless you and make everything beautiful and roses. And I'm not going to say that God doesn't. God does. But as the, more, the, the closer your life aligns with God's, the harder Satan is going to get in there to try to divide it. So it's not going to be all roses all the time. And so we need to remember that if tough times come, that is not a sign of God saying, this isn't for you. This isn't my will. We don't need to be like the Jews in that moment. No, what we need to do 
is we need to remember to choose the hard right over the easy wrong. We need to choose the hard right over the easy wrong. When temptations come your way, you need to choose the hard right over the easy wrong. When language pops in your head that you want to say in a moment, choose the hard right and the easy wrong and probably filter that language. When you have a decision at work, choose the hard right over the easy wrong. When you're parenting and your kids do that dumb thing that gets on your nerves, choose the hard right over the easy wrong. God will continue in this passage through Haggai to show us that we can no longer wait to build His temple and renew the vision. We need to worship now. He says, do this now. In verse 3, Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. So it's interesting, Haggai uses a reference here called paneled houses. And what Haggai is doing, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is he's kind of showing us that the people at this time had become wealthy. They've they've been very prosperous. And this isn't a message for us to say that we can't be wealthy or we can't be prosperous. But what it is a message is for us to understand that the wealth that we acquire, the, the comforts in life that come, and the materials that we gain should never take the place of God in our hearts. Like the things that He blesses us with are simply that. They are blessings. And we should use them to further God's kingdom. Not just simply shut ourselves away inside of our paneled houses and our nice vehicles and our comfortable situations. We should use these things that God has given us to continue to grow God's kingdom. Where in your life is comfort and materials taking the place of God? How much energy do you spend seeking Christ through His Word, through prayer, through actions that can impact others and see His kingdom grow, through the building of His church, as opposed to the million other good things that you could be doing. A little side note here. Don't settle for the good. Reach for the great. Don't settle for the good in your life. Reach for the great. It's good to work hard and build businesses. It's good to be invested into your kid's life and be active in their sports, their hobbies, and more. It's good to have hobbies of yourself and take some me time. But it's great to work hard, build a business while modeling to your employees, your employers, and coworkers that Christ comes first. It's great to be invested into your kid's life and to be active in their sports, their hobbies, and more while leading them in the only life lesson that matters. To surrender it all to Jesus. It's great to have hobbies and to take some me time, but use that as a Sabbath and fill your tank so that you can go pour it out. 
Do not settle for just the good in life. Reach for the great. That is what God has called us to do. He has not settled, He has not called us to just settle for a paneled house that will one day fade away. He has said, if I give you a paneled house, use it for the glory of God. Stand firm. Worship me. Are you building a paneled house while Christ's temple remains in ruin? Continue on, verse 6. You have sown much and have harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. He, Haggai, again, is, is hearkening back to this, this, this place of prosperity and saying, you can continue to search for the answer in the things of this world, but you'll never be satisfied. It will never be enough. In many ways, it's like insanity. We, we do the same thing hoping for a different result. We need to strive for the great, which is Jesus. We need to strive to worship Him with our whole hearts because He has given us His everything. But how do we do it? How, how, how do we accurately assess where we are? There's a tension that we would fight probably on a daily basis to say, how, how much is too much? Where's the line of, well, am I supposed to like share the gospel every day? And if I don't do that, and we don't want to get legalistic, but there's an aspect where we should be able to look back on our life and go as a Christ follower, as a person that says, I believe in Jesus above all things. I believe in Jesus above my voting in November. I believe in Jesus above whatever movements are happening in or, and around me. I believe in Jesus above my bank account. I believe in Jesus above all things. Okay, so how does that belief in Jesus shape everything that you do? How, how does it move you to be closer to Him and to align your life with His? How do we get to that place? God tells us through Haggai, verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways, go up to the hills, bring wood, build the house, that I might take pleasure in it, that I may be glorified, says the Lord. He says, go to the mountain, bring down the timber, build the house. Go to the mountain, bring down the timber, build the house. Go to the mountain, bring down the timber, build the house. God gives us clear orders. So you need to go do that. Go to the mountain, bring down the timber, and build the house. Think about this. Is climbing a mountain easy? No. Choose the hard right. Would be bringing the timber down, would that be easy? No, choose the hard right. Would building a house be easy. No, choose the hard right. Above all things, choose the hard right. It is not a difficult process to walk with the Lord. He gives us clear ways on how to connect with Him, on how to trust 
Him. In Romans 12, 2, He says, Do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be renewed and be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. So how do I know how to follow Jesus? Get into His Word. Get into His Word. How do I know the will of God in all things? Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So the Christian shouldn't question too often, what is the will of God? Now that doesn't mean we can't pray and have a, a, a conversation with God, like what is your will for my life? Because we find ourselves in those times of, God, what do you have for us? But it's a simple conversation of God. Reveal yourself. Reveal yourself. Reveal yourself. And maybe sometimes He's telling you to stop talking. Slow down. Stop doing so many good things in search for the great things. Hear from me. Go to the mountain. Bring down the timber. Build the house. Slow down. Make it easy. Give yourself simple steps in following after Jesus. For some, it's, it's the routine of a quiet time. For others, it's riding in your car, listening to the Bible. Maybe it's worship music. Maybe it's a simple conversation with a friend on a regular basis. And that, that's a hard, not just a, a light-hearted conversation, but a, a real conversation about where you are in Christ. Philippians 1.9, Paul writing to the church says, This is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best, and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to glory and praise of God. When we are connected to the Lord, He will give us a discernment to be able to recognize what the hard right is and what the wrong easy is. Or the easy wrong, excuse me. We need to, unlike the Jews in this moment, take a step back and analyze where are our hearts are we building ourselves kingdoms or are we helping build the kingdom of God and worship for Him? And your actions will be proven throughout time. Love is proven by time and effort over and over again. Craig Rochelle says this in a leadership podcast. He says, the outcome is not your responsibility. Only obedience is. The outcome is not your responsibility. Only obedience is. So when Scripture tells us to turn the other cheek and love well and love with all that we have, I think sometimes we over-rationalize that concept and we go, well, you know, in this situation, it's not really smart logistically to do this. And I go, and I, I go where, where do you see that? Certainly God gives us a discerning heart and he gives us ideas of what safety looked like and, and rationality. But maybe somewhere in our lives, we're taking too much of a focus on us and not enough of a focus on Jesus. And we're worried about the outcome. Where God says, don't worry about that. Just be obedient. The Israelites building this temple could have easily took a stance and go, oh, we're not going to be able to finish it right now anyway, so why even start? And God's saying, go to the mountain. Bring down the timber. 
fulfilled. Do this. Follow me. Take it easy. Will we choose the hard right to worship God rather than the easy, wrong, and settle? Will we choose the hard right to worship God rather than the easy, wrong, to settle? God has called you and I as Hunter comes up. I want us to sing a song here in a moment. He's called us to worship Him now with all that we have, with all of our hearts. And when we say worship, I think sometimes we think about music, you know, skinny jeans and cool shirts, right? But that's not what I think God's always talking about. I think God, when when He talks about worship for us, what, what He's saying is, with everything that you have, follow me. This evening we're going to talk about prayer with our students. And I've been thinking about this passage that talks about praying without ceasing. And I remember early in my faith, I would read that and I go, God doesn't really mean praying without ceasing, right? But the more I walk with the Lord and the more I'm discipled by men who have walked with Him for a long time, the more I see God really is saying, be in a constant conversation with me. Like pray without ceasing. Prayer is a mode of worship for us. Like be in a posture in your life to say, this is how I will walk with my heart. In full mode worship, I'm not going to hold anything back. I'm not going to build a paneled house. I am not going to be a me-centered world. I am going to renew the vision that Jesus Christ has put inside of me and I am going to worship. I'm going to season my language with the salt of the Holy Spirit. I am going to search after God in my relationships. I'm going to try to bring people closer to Him in those. I'm going to invest in His church. I'm not going to be someone who just sits in a chair, but I am going to be actively involved in the growth of God at Piedmont. Because that's what He's called you to do. He hasn't called you to come and sit and receive. He's called you to be a reproducer. That's what it means to make disciples. When Jesus meets with His disciples after His death, burial, and resurrection, He looks at them and says, Now go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them all of my ways. Notice He didn't say, Just get converts and fill a building. Live your life for discipleship, for the growth of God's kingdom. So in your business, how are you treating your employees and employers, your coworkers? In your relationships with your kids' friends, how are you communicating with those parents? With the person bagging your groceries at the grocery store, with the Instacart delivery person. I mean, seriously, how are you showing the love of Jesus? 
Are you worshiping or are you comfortable and you're going to stay in your paneled house? I, I fall guilty in this, this one sometimes. I, I go, I'm just so busy. I've got a million things in my mind. I don't want to pull the pastor card. You know, because when, when you're out in public and you have a the simple conversation, everyone goes, hey, so what do you do for a living? And as soon as I pull the pastor card, conversation's over. Like, it's done. Right? Like, there's, there's no more conversing. Or they'll, they'll, they'll backpedal and they'll try to, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, the thing I said back there, ignore that. Right? Don't worry about that. And what God has shown me time and time again is that the outcome is not my responsibility. It's the obedience that I'm in charge of. I'm responsible for how I follow Jesus. So we can no longer see His temple in ruin and in rubble. We need to go to the mountain, bring down the timber, and build the temple. We need to worship God with all we have in every area of your life. So we're going to sing this song after I pray. And I want it to just be a moment for you. The song's called Heart of Worship. It's got a really cool story, and I'm not going to tell you right now. You can Google it later. But what I want you to think about is what does it mean for you to, to come back to a sincere place and heart of worship? Let me pray. God, as we ponder and, and search ask you to search our hearts for where we are building paneled houses and where we are neglecting to build your house will you show us and convict us of the areas that we need to give over to you maybe there's someone in this room or in earshot of this recording that says I've never put my faith in Jesus I've never been baptized and followed after God Lord may May through the power of your spirit you convict them and show them that all of mankind fell to sin and was separated from God because of that sin. But you sent your son Jesus to reunite us, to bring us back into the fold, to give us eternal life, but to give us life also abundantly here and now. And as abundant life receivers, we then take that gospel and wear it as a, a a badge of honor to all those around us. And we share that same news, making disciples. So if anyone hasn't repented of themselves, meaning they, they just said, I'm going to turn from my old life and all that sin, I'm going to put my faith in Jesus, I pray that they have that time to do it now. They simply just say, Lord, I repent of my sins and I put my faith in you. For those of us that have been walking with Christ for years, maybe there's a place in our life we need to give over to you. We've been holding it back like a paneled house. And we've been watching your house fall in ruin. And we need to just turn that over to you. And so God, I pray that you'll do that. You'll, you'll give them the strength, give us the strength to do that. Help us to follow you with all that we have. Not to just make this Christianity thing a show. It is a living relationship with you. Help me to live that out in every word, in every deed of my life. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen.